Good morning. In today's headlines, Hunter Biden could soon be facing 10 years of jail time on felony gun charges. And House Oversight Chair James Comer digs into his probe of the Biden family business dealings. Skepticism from the judge, talk of a four-month trial and 150 expected witnesses from the prosecution. We hear from a legal analyst about the first hearing in Trump's Georgia election case. A lawsuit seeks to bar former President Trump from the GOP primary in Colorado, citing the U.S. Constitution's insurrection clause. The Biden administration makes a key decision affecting oil and gas drilling in Alaska. A Republican senator calls the move devastating. Some communities are going on the offensive to ward off potential COVID mandates or restrictions by passing local bans. A California judge blocks a school's parent notification policy on whether a child identifies as transgender. NTD speaks to the Protect Kids organization on related new ballot initiatives. And have you heard about Giraffe Naps? A cafe in Tokyo is testing out an interesting way of sleeping. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Thursday, September 7th. Well, Evelyn, we have a lot of hard news to break, of course, with the Bidens and Trump topping the news, but those giraffe naps, you know, it's really cool. Napping, standing up, I would love to just try that. It would probably be good for the lower back. Oh, yeah, good point. And it sounds completely crazy, but I have to say, I think they made a good point there. Yeah. Which we will reveal later in the show, of course. I see. Well, but today we start off with some news on Hunter Biden's legal troubles that are back in the spotlight. Federal prosecutors plan to seek a grand jury indictment on gun charges before the end of the month. A conviction could carry a penalty of up to 10 years in prison. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the case. The Justice Department said Wednesday that Special Counsel David Weiss intends to seek an indictment by September 29th under the Speedy Trial Act. Prosecutors didn't say how many charges would be brought. Hunter Biden's gun-related troubles stem from lying on a federal form about being addicted to illegal drugs when buying a revolver. Hunter Biden's attorney Abe Lowell said in a statement Wednesday that the previous deal, quote, prevents any additional charges from being filed against Mr. Biden, and that we expect a fair resolution of the sprawling five-year investigation based on the evidence and the law, not outside political pressure. Hunter Biden previously reached a plea deal involving a gun charge back in June. It would have allowed him to avoid prosecution if he met certain conditions over a two-year period. But the deal fell apart in a July court hearing. The judge in the case raised concerns over its legality and the scope of immunity it offered. The plea deal also included him promising to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors to avoid jail time. A federal judge in Delaware dismissed the tax charges last month. It opened the door for new charges to be brought against the president's son in another jurisdiction. Weiss is still considering whether or not to charge Hunter Biden with tax crimes. He said in a court filing last month that a trial is now in order on the tax offenses and that he may bring tax charges in California or Washington, D.C. The House Oversight Committee reportedly asked Hunter Biden's attorneys for documents on the defunct plea agreement on Wednesday and gave them until September 20th to respond, marking a new chapter in the Republican-led panel's investigation into the Biden family. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
House Oversight Chair James Comer is digging into his investigation of alleged corruption from the Biden family. He's now calling for the National Archives to hand over emails between President Biden and his son. The congressman says he expects the records will provide further evidence of collusion between Biden family members and then Vice President Biden's office. He says it will prove that President Biden engaged in abuse of power. One example Comer provided is a letter from Eric Schwerin, a longtime Biden family business associate. He contacted, contacted then Vice President Biden's office in 2015 with quotes for the White House to use for media about Hunter Biden's role in Ukrainian energy firm Burisma. He received a response from the VP's communications director that said, VP signed off on this. Here's Comer on Fox News yesterday about the email. There was no wall between Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, and his shady business dealings. This email that you just uh, posted was one of many, and we believe there are more that the archives are sitting on. Our sources at the Secret Service say that Mayorkas called them to tell them to stop cooperating with Comer and the Oversight Committee. So Mayorkas and Merrick Garland are part of the cover-up. These are the two arguably highest-ranking people in the Biden administration. Comer says Hunter Biden's former business partner Devin Archer testified that Hunter called D.C. the same day as the letter to discuss pressure that Burisma asked to relieve. The National Archives identified over a thousand emails between business entities tied to Hunter Biden and his father, President Biden, to be turned over after being sued by America First Legal. Many of the documents contain redactions and about 200 of them have been blocked from release. Next, we have the chance to speak with a judicial scholar on the first hearing of Trump's Georgia election case. We're going to look at what happened and what we can expect going forward. John Malcolm, VP of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government, joins us live. Good morning, John. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. What do you make of Judge McAfee's skepticism of D.A. Willis's October trial date request for all 19 defendants, saying it's unrealistic? Oh, it's completely unrealistic. Uh, first of all, the four-month estimate uh, is likely, likely to be longer than that. If you're going to have over 150 witnesses and 19 defendants cross-examining uh, those witnesses, I would say it's more likely six months. And that did not include jury selection. Uh, and jury selection in a case like this would likely take a month or two months at least. Uh, as well, all of these defendants have been provided with millions of pages of documents. Many of them have just retained their attorneys. They haven't had a chance to review these documents, consult with their attorneys, file pretrial motions, and there will be lots of them, including motions to dismiss on all sorts of grounds. The two defendants who it looks like will go forward, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro, the, the cases against them are more discreet, and they have demanded their speedy trial rights. So presumably they are not going to raise a lot of pretrial motions and want to get this trial done. Uh, so they will likely go forward in October. Surprises me, but I think they will. But I don't think there's any way that all 19 of these co-defendants are going to go uh, to trial in October. These co-defendants certainly have a lot to get through, and it's a lot on Judge McAfee's hands. I mean, he's just recently been appointed to the Fulton County bench, and he's probably one of the newest judges in Georgia. So what's the impact of the judge's decision not to separate Kenneth Giesbro's case from Sidney Powell's? Well, it looks as if the remaining 17 defendants will get a preview as to what the government's case is going to be. One of the reasons why the government doesn't want to do this uh, is that it doesn't want to have its witnesses have to testify 
two or possibly three or four times, depending on what happens to other defendants and whether they are severed. Every time a defend, every time a witness tells its uh, his or her story, that story changes, uh, which makes it you know easier to impeach them, and there is certainly less surprise to the defendants. So I understand why she would want to try all of these defendants at the same time. But, you know, it, it's sort of her, her own fault for having charged 19 defendants in a very, very broad-ranging uh, indictment. Talk about broad-ranging. The prosecution plans to call 150 witnesses to the case, as we mentioned. Can you put that number in perspective for us? Oh, that is a huge number. Well, look, she's charged uh, a violation of the Georgia RICO statute. That's, that's a Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act against a presidential campaign and basically said that anything that happened from the day after the election through Inauguration Day and beyond was part of a racketeering conspiracy. Uh, there are, are thousands of people who were involved in that campaign uh, and involved in the effort to try to uh, change the results of the election. I don't know which of the 150 witnesses she has chosen, but she said she has 19 co-defendants, 30 unindicted co-conspirators whom she can name, and an unnamed or an uh, you know, unnamed additional number of unindicted co-conspirators whom she can't name. So who knows who she'll call this trial? Uh, if it ever goes to trial, uh, will be like the circus on steroids, and there's no way it's going to happen in two months. And if it did happen in two months, it would be reversed for a violation of the defendant's due process rights. And Trump and his team have said that they would not be ready on such a short time frame. Now, do you, do you have any insight from the hearing on how the judge is going to play out here? No, I don't think so. I mean, a lot of the defendants are trying to sever themselves. Donald Trump is, of course, looking to put this off as long as possible. And for good reason. He's facing three other indictments, all of which have trial dates. Uh, and in addition, he has several uh, civil suits going on at the same time that he's trying to run for president uh, again. It is possible that a couple of these other defendants will be severed. Several of the defendants are trying to get the case removed to federal court. I don't know when a federal judge is going to definitively rule on those, uh, but it looks as if the first two, uh, Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbro, will go to trial at the end of October. Yes, we'll see how that plays out. John Malcolm at the Heritage Foundation, I appreciate it. Good to be with you. And a lawsuit filed yesterday seeks to bar former President Trump from the primary ballot in Colorado. A liberal group argues the 2024 candidate is ineligible to run for the White House again. They're citing a rarely used clause in the U.S. Constitution aimed at candidates who've supported an insurrection. The complaint was filed by the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington on behalf of six Colorado voters. The state's top election officials are looking for guidance from the courts on how to interpret the 14th Amendment clause used only a few times since the 1860s. The clause cites a wide range of offices under the United States it says the provision applies to presidential electors, but not the presidency itself. There's also debate about whether Trump's actions constitute an insurrection under the language of the amendment. And coming up, the Trump administration issued gas and oil leases for Alaska a day before Biden's inauguration. Now the Biden administration is canceling them. And the Pentagon is stepping up pressure on Republican Senator Tommy, Tup Tommy Tuberville on, of Alabama. He's protesting the funding of abortion travel for service members. That and more after this short break.
Welcome back. The Biden administration is canceling seven oil and gas leases in Alaska issued during the Trump administration. Entities Daniel Monahan has more on the move, which has angered some Republicans. The leases canceled by the Department of the Interior cover 365,000 acres in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, or NPRA. The NPRA is a 23 million acre area on the state's north slope. It is the largest undisturbed public land in the United States. The department will also ban new leases on more than 40% of the reserve. President Biden issued a statement saying the U.S. has a responsibility to protect the treasured region for all ages. He says the move will help, quote, preserve our Arctic lands and wildlife while honoring the culture, history, and enduring wisdom of Alaska natives who have lived on these lands since time immemorial. The Trump administration issued the seven leases to the Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority one day before President Biden's inauguration. Republican Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska criticized the move, calling it unlawful and devastating for the state. He wrote on X, this war on Alaska is devastating for not only Alaska, but also the energy security of the nation. The Earth Justice Environmental Group commended the decision. Group President Abigail Dillon said, Looking ahead, we hope to see the strongest possible protections for the Arctic refuge and the Western Arctic in the years to come. However, reactions from indigenous groups were mixed. Voice of the Arctic Inupiat says the decision flies in the face of our region's wishes and self-determination, while another native group called the Gwich'in Steering Committee applauded the action and said oil and gas development would threaten the Gwich'in people's way of life. Alaskan oil production has dwindled in the last three decades. The state currently produces less than 500,000 barrels per day of crude, down from more than 2 million in 1988. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden has rejected conditions of a plea deal for five defendants in the 9-11 attacks, according to the New York Times. The five are jailed in Guantanamo Bay and include the alleged principal architect of the attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. The New York Times reported the deal lets them plead guilty to conspiracy in the attacks and receive life sentences instead of the death penalty. The defendants requested some conditions, including not serving their sentences in solitary confinement and being able to eat and pray with other inmates. The White House called the 9-11 attacks the single worst assault on the United States in Pearl Harbor and said the requested conditions are not appropriate for a plea bargain. The Pentagon is stepping up pressure on Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, who has been blocking senior military nominations for nine months. The Alabama senator says he's holding up nominations over the Pentagon's decision to cover abortion travel costs. He says it's a violation of the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funding of abortion. The civilian leaders of three branches of the U.S. military slammed the senator in public this week. On Monday, the Secretary of the Navy, the Army and the Air Force published an op-ed in the Washington Post against Tuberville. On Tuesday, the three secretaries appeared in a CNN interview criticizing the senator. Then on Wednesday, in a rare move, the Pentagon published a new story on its web official website highlighting the impact of Tuberville's blockade. Celeste Malloy won a three-way GOP primary during a special election to replace longtime Utah Representative Chris Stewart. 
Six-term GOP Congressman Stewart announced his resignation in May. Malloy is a former aide to Stewart. Malloy attributed the success of her campaign to its focus on rural areas, noting her message opposing government overreach struck a chord with rural voters. Malloy is a supporter of former President Trump. She's expected to have a strong advantage in the November special election in the Republican-leaning district. And before we head into break, here are some short news alerts for you. A new twist in the Fat Leonard bribery scandal. The felony convictions of four Navy officers were dropped due to information being kept from defense lawyers. The officers were connected to a bribery investigation into a contractor nicknamed Fat Leonard. The convictions were lowered to misdemeanors. Each man pleaded guilty and paid a $100 fine. Police and multiple agencies in D.C. are looking for a homicide suspect who escaped custody. 30-year-old Christopher Haynes escaped from George Washington University Hospital yesterday. The university has issued a shelter-in-place order for the campus. It is unknown whether Haynes is armed, but police advised people not to engage if they see him and to call 911. The manhunt continues for Danilo Calvacanti, the convicted murderer who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison last week. Calvacanti has since been spotted in several locations in the area, including someone's home. Hundreds of law enforcement personnel are partaking in the intensive search. Police are looking into whether he managed to obtain a weapon and if he is being helped by someone. 26 million Texans can now relax after the Electric Reliability Council of Texas lifted its emergency usage alert. The recent heat wave caused an all-time record high peak usage. The power company avoided shortages by bringing all available generation online and releasing their remaining reserves. That Fat Leonard scandal really is crazy and just prosecutorial misconduct put an end to it. Well, yeah, he bribed officers with millions in cash for classified documents. Very serious. And China's Huawei back in hot water. Lawmakers say the company used U.S. chip technology it was barred from using. We speak to an expert to find out more. And U.S. technology boosting, is U.S. technology boosting Huawei's new phone? Washington is trying to figure out how this manufacturer was able to launch the smartphone amid sweeping U.S. sanctions. Authorities are now working to determine if restrictions were bypassed to create the phone's advanced chip. Huawei unveiled its new Mate 60 Pro last week. It contains a chip believed to have been made by top Chinese chip maker SMIC with a tech breakthrough that has left many wondering how it was realized. Representative Mike Gallagher called on the White House to end all export sales to Huawei and SMIC. He said the chip likely could not be produced without U.S. technology and thus SMIC may have violated U.S. trade restrictions. Huawei was put on the U.S. trade blacklist in 2019 due to national security concerns. Its foreign suppliers must obtain special permission to ship goods to it. SMIC was also placed on the entity list in 2020 due to concerns that it could divert technology to the Chinese military. But reports have shown that suppliers have obtained billions of dollars worth of licenses to sell U.S. technology to the two companies. The U.S. Commerce Department didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. And to delve deeper into this issue, I spoke to Anders Kaur. He's a publisher for the Journal of Political Risk. Huawei uh, has been 
producing or putting together some uh, chip fabs in China, um, and they are trying to indigenously produce uh, the chips that they previously relied on Intel for. So, um, you know, this is the big question about what's the effect of the sanctions? Has the sanctions really put pressure on China and Huawei, or are the sanctions just a trigger for Huawei and China to get their own technologies in order in terms of their own chip fabs that can produce these things. It's very hard to do this. Um, there are very few companies in the world that have uh, super fast uh, computer chips that can work for AI. Um, and I think that's the main concern that uh, China would use these computer chips, not just in phones, of course, but in uh, artificial intelligence, military applications that could be quite threatening globally, um, you know, on things like surveillance drones or lethal drones that are able to target uh, its, you know, people or or vehicles uh, autonomously. So this is, this is the concern. Right. Now, with this latest development, then, where would this put China and the U.S. in this chip war, if we zoom out a little bit? Uh, there's also a big competition for international markets. You're, I don't think we're going to see so much uh, Huawei access to the European and American markets. Um, those are decreasing now, but there is competition for uh, markets in what China would call the global south, uh, which is um, you know South America, Africa, um, Southeast Asia, South Asia. Uh, and they're trying to beat U.S. companies on price point, also Indian companies. I mean, they're not, it's not just U.S. companies, but they're, um, but it's European, Indian, U.S. companies um, that would offer smartphone technology to consumers. But if Huawei is allowed to use to, to capture all those markets, or if other Chinese companies are allowed to capture those markets, it will give the Chinese Communist Party quite a bit of power because they'll be able to uh, use that technology as backdoors for surveillance and hacking. Uh, and that's a, we know that's an incredible risk. We know that um, China is at the forefront of international surveillance, and they use these technologies for, uh, for example, very important things like beating out other companies in any kind of uh, competition, whether it's infrastructure, telecom, um, anything else. Uh, they can use, for example, industrial or economic espionage to uh, win contracts worth mil hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Anders Kaur. I really appreciate your time and insights today. Thank you so much. And now to some short headlines from around the world. Russia has called the U.S. supply of depleted uranium weapons to Ukraine a criminal act. The Pentagon this week announced a new security package worth up to $175 million for Ukraine, including depleted uranium ammunition for U.S. Abrams tanks. Critics say dangerous health risks arise from depleted uranium dust. The U.N. has found no substantive link between the munitions and serious poisoning. And the remnants of Typhoon Haikui drenched South China for a third day since making landfall. Its storms flooded parts of southeastern Fujian province, damaging over 2,500 homes and forcing almost 300,000 people to evacuate. Streets in the cities of Fuqing and Yantai turned into rivers due to torrential rains.
Japan hopes to become the world's fifth country to land on the moon early next year. It launched a lunar exploration spacecraft yesterday aboard a homegrown rocket. Japan's lunar track record isn't great. Two landing attempts over the past year both failed. The rocket carries an X-ray telescope to explore the origins of the universe. And you know, Evelyn, there are a lot of concerns about U.S. weapons going to Ukraine. I mean, first it was cluster munitions, which endanger civilians later on down the road, and now it's these depleted uranium ammo. That's right, and it was the EPA, as we've just heard briefly, that the depleted uranium is a health hazard in the body, and that's especially for the kidneys. Right, yeah, very serious. So now into the break, can the country level ban on the, can the, can the county level ban the jabs? In three states it happened, we speak to the author of the Ban the Jab Resolution. Girls Sports Cross-Ex Procedures Parental Notification. Children are the focus of three new ballot initiatives in California. NTD talks to the Protect Kids organization. Good to have you back. Masks in schools, an issue that proved divisive during the COVID pandemic, is stirring up new controversy. That's after some learning institutions brought them back, reportedly to prevent the spread of the disease. One such school is in Maryland. Rosemary Hills Elementary School has mandated that students and staff in a kindergarten class wear masks for 10 days. The rule was put in place after three students in the classroom tested positive for COVID. An Alabama Kinterbrish Junior High announced in late August that students, employees, and visitors should wear masks. While in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul announced this week that the state is making COVID test kits and masks available to school districts by request. Republican Senator J.D. Vance is responding to the moves by schools. He introduced a bill Tuesday which would outlaw mask mandates for school kids or airline passengers until December 2024. And sticking with COVID, some people are going on the offensive. They want to ensure that any so-called COVID wave doesn't usher in new boosters, mask mandates, and other potential restrictions. A movement has been taking place at the local level to ban COVID shots. Nine counties in Florida have banned the shots in the past few months. One in Idaho and few others are in the works. And yesterday night, another county has passed the resolution, this time in Texas. And we have many questions, so we're bringing in Joseph Sansone, the author of the Ban the Jab Resolution. Good morning, Joseph. It's really good to have you this morning. But first off, please tell us more about the resolution. What does it mean once the county has passed that resolution, as in what changes? Okay, so this is uh, last night, Indian River County was the 10th Republican Party in the state of Florida to pass these resolutions. What these resolutions are is official declarations by the Republican Party declaring COVID-19 injections and all MNRA injections to be biological and technological weapons. Uh, and we're calling on the governor to immediately prohibit the distribution of these weapons and for the attorney general of the state to confiscate the vials and conduct forensic analysis. And this resolution uh, was endorsed by Dr. Francis Boyle. He's the Harvard-educated law professor 
that wrote the 1989 Bioweapons and Anti-Terrorism Act. He's arguably the world's leading legal expert on biological weapons. Uh, and I gave him Florida law. He evaluated it. And he said that these injections meet the definition of biological weapons according to state law and the federal law he drafted. And so we've got uh, counties as far away as Oregon have passed this, and the Idaho Republican Party has passed it as well. So these are official statements from the party, not the county itself. Um, and But we're going to continue to build pressure. What we're not going to do is we're not going to debate whether these biological weapons should be mandated or not. Mm. We're going to start asking the question, who do we need to investigate and who do we need to prosecute? Um, Right. And and before that, there is one very significant issue, too. What does it mean for the people on a practical level? Uh, well, on a practical level, this is not the actual. We're working on ordinances at the county level, too, but none, none of those have passed yet. Um, but what this is doing is putting b both pressure on our elected officials and also giving them cover to act. I mean, at some point, the governor of the state of Florida is gonna to need to act here because his own party is beginning to say that these are weapons of mass destruction and they need to be halted. Now, on, on a separate action that we're doing through uh, nationalarm.org is we're, we've presented an 83-page document with 149 uh, exhibits of evidence of these crimes uh, to four states so far, New Jersey, Florida, Idaho and Texas. And what we've done is we've presented this grand jury petition to uh, county uh, prosecutors across these states and state attorneys, as well as the governor, the attorney generals, as well as the county sheriffs. So that, that's a separate action, but, that, but that's giving a lot of the uh, evidence out there as well. To date, no government entity itself has taken action yet, but we're gonna continue to put pressure on them until they do take action, because this is a movement that's growing because uh, more and more people, we're seeing more people being disabled. We're seeing more people being uh, dying from these injections. Right. Um, and can we can we delve deeper into this part? Because I hear you mentioning the word bioweapon a lot. So can you go into depth about the evidence that you presented on your end to, you know, to pass this as a classification? Yeah. So there's a quite uh, just for one, if you look at the law, a biological agent that's harming people in mass and people are dying in mass, that alone would make it qualify as a biological weapon. But one of my colleagues, Dr. Anna Mahalchia, um, she has documented using dark field microscopy, the self-assembling nanotechnology that's in the injections and in the blood of the vaccinated and even the unvaccinated from shedding. And what she documents is the self-assembling technology and, and creating these hydrogel mounts that actually create these blue fibers that are actually forming these biosynthetic blood clots. Uh, so that's videographic evidence right there. Uh, and then you got the VAERS data, which is being suppressed anyway. Um, you've got, uh, you know, the turbo cancers that we're seeing out there. You've got, you know, it's not normal for young people to be stroking out and, and dying of heart attacks. This isn't normal and we can't look the other way anymore. Hmm. Now, uh, we have a couple of seconds left. Are there any other sure. counties in the works at the moment? Uh, yeah, uh, we're hoping for a couple more to pass this month. Uh, you know, we're hoping for another state to pull it off. We got people working in Texas. We got people working in Tennessee. So people are. This is a, a somewhat decentralized effort because it's a very bottom-up grassroots effort. Um, but we do got people working actually across the country on this right now. Uh, and uh, you know, we had the Ohio. Uh, a friend of mine uh, confronted the Ohio Attorney General the other day about the people, the young people dying and being injured from these injections and asked when, when's he going to investigate? 
And his response was he didn't have the authority to do it. That's not okay. That's well, not thank, okay. Well, we will keep an eye on this. Thank you so much, Joseph Sanzone, for this update. Thank you. From public health to the border crisis, a federal judge has ordered Texas to remove the floating barriers in the Rio Grande River. They're designed to stop illegal immigrants from crossing the river at the Texas-Mexico border. The issue has been in the courts since July. A lawsuit accused Texas of violating the Rivers and Harbors Appropriation Act by placing the buoys in U.S. water without permission. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says the buoys are intended to keep illegal immigrants from crossing into Texas from Mexico. Texas already appealed the judge's order. The governor's office said the state is prepared to take the fight all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. A California judge yesterday temporarily blocked a local school district's parent notification policy. The policy requires schools to notify parents when their child identifies as transgender. Entities Daniel Monahan spoke with representatives of the Protect Kids organization, which supports such policies and recently launched three new ballot initiatives in California. School district trustee Jonathan Zachrison is one of the proponents of the initiatives. The School Transparency and Partnership Act is the first one. It would require that schools notify parents if their child wishes to be treated as transgender at school. So as soon as the school gets involved and the, and the kid says, hey, I want to go by this new name, I want to use these pronouns, I want to use these opposite sex facilities because uh, I'm really the opposite, uh, opposite gender, uh, that's when these parents would be notified by the school. Zacherson says the initiative also requires parental involvement in determining how the situation will be handled at school. So it's not just a phone call to the to the home and says, hey, by the way, uh, your daughter's now using the boy's bathroom. It's, uh, hey, uh, your boy wants to use the boy's bathroom, wants to use this. Let's sit down together uh, and come up with a plan that's going to work best for your child. The second initiative is the Protect Girls Sports and Spaces Act. That would repeal uh, a law that was passed 10 years ago. Uh, that said that schools, mu uh, schools must let kids choose the bathrooms and locker rooms and sports programs that match their gender identity, even if it's different than their biological sex. Protect Kids member attorney Erin Friday discusses the initiative. This initiative is to bring back biological reality and biological truth that male bodies and female bodies have differences. And it doesn't matter how much surgery you do, how many hormones you pump into a male body, they're still going to be stronger, faster. Women, we're designed to have a flight or fright reaction when we're walking down a, a dark street and there's a male walking towards us. This is a natural part of our makeup. And now we're telling young girls to ignore this and to accept a naked person in their, a naked man in their bathrooms. The third initiative is the Protect Children from Reproductive Harm Act. It would ban any type of gender interventions on minors, meaning no puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or surgeries for those under 18. The interesting thing is that, that they say that gender is fluid until it lands on trans, and then it's static which of course has no basis in science, just a tragedy that we are allowing minors to make irreversible decisions that will affect their lives forever. California Attorney General Rob Bonta disagrees. 
He says schools serve as the only safe haven for some students identifying as another gender. He filed a lawsuit on August 28th against a school district, which recently adopted a parental notification policy. We have to ensure our schools are sanctuaries for every single student. We have to fight those who would try to rip that away from them. Zacherson and Friday say polling makes them confident the initiatives will succeed if they make it to the November ballot, where they would go straight to the voters. They cite polling, which they say indicates strong support from people on both sides of the political spectrum for all three measures. They ask those who wish to support helping them get them on the ballot to go to protectkidsca.com. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Still to come, Bill Gates is betting on Bud Light. The billionaire purchased tens of millions of dollars worth of Bud Light's parent company in recent days. And a strike warning from United Auto Workers Union Chief. Entity business host Don Ma has more on that and the impact of a potential walkout after the break. It's good to have you back with us. The head of the United Auto Workers issued a stark warning for Detroit automakers yesterday. He says the union will go on strike if a new agreement isn't reached by the time contracts expire next week. We're bringing in NTD business host Don Ma to discuss this. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Kevin. Man, it's hot out there today. Yeah, hopefully you're staying cool. So can you tell us more about this situation here? Yeah, sure. Um, so the president, Sean Fain, made it very clear that the, the union would strike if any one of the companies don't reach a tentative deal by the time their national contracts end. Uh, and, and the companies in question are General Motors, Stellantis and Ford. Um, so contracts with the three companies expire at 11.59 p.m. on September 14th. You know, so far, there has been a lot of back and forth in terms of bargaining. Uh, Fain did report some progress in the no negotiations. He says uh, the union will meet Thursday with GM to hear the company's response to the UAW's economic demands. Uh, but besides that, discussions are also underway with Ford on wages and benefits. Though he said Stellantis has yet to make a counteroffer on wages and benefit demands. Well, hopefully they can come to a resolution so none of these costs get passed down to the consumer. So what would be the impact if there is a strike? Yeah, if a strike against all three major automakers happen, it could cause damage not only to just the industry as a whole, but also to the Midwest and potentially even the national economy, depending on how long it lasts. Um, so the auto industry accounts for about uh, 3% of the nation's economic output. So a prolonged strike uh, could also even eventually lead to higher vehicle prices. And nobody wants that, right? Uh, Fain has signaled though good news that the, the union is willing to compromise on some of the demands, which shows at least there's some level of flexibility, which of course is good. Uh, Fain says the union doesn't really you know, want to strike and would prefer to reach new contracts with the automakers. Uh, some of the union's demands, uh, by the way, include a 46% across the board pay raise, a 32 hour work week with 40 hours of pay and the restoration of traditional pensions uh, for new hires uh, and among other things. Well, of course, that's good. They have flexibility. I mean, no one wants to be on strike and not working. So anything else for us, Don? 
Sure. Um, Google agrees to settle an antitrust lawsuit, it seems like. Uh, the lawsuit accuses Google of inflating paid app prices and in-app purchases. Uh, New York, California, and other states are parties in the lawsuit. The settlement is in principle only right now, but the attorneys general involved said more information will be made public in the next 30 days. Google said it had no comment at this time. Um, but now turning to air travel, higher fuel prices seems like chipping away at the profit margins of some big airlines, um, you know, like Alaska, Southwest, and United. Southwest has adjusted its projected earnings uh, downward by about 5 to 7% compared to last year. They also said bookings were at the lower end of their projections. The picture will be clearer when quarterly reports come out next month. Um, but other than those two updates, that's all from me this morning, Kevin. Don, great story selection. Thank you for that update. Host of NT Business, Don Ma, I appreciate it. Of course, anytime, Kevin. Bill Gates appears to be backing Bud Light amid a lengthy boycott targeting the beer maker. He purchased tens of millions of dollars worth of Bud Light's parent company in recent days. Here's the story. According to a recent regulatory filing in tip ranks, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Trust purchased 1.7 million shares of Anheuser-Busch, the parent company of Bud Light. The shares are worth around $95 million. Reports indicate that Gates purchased the shares in August. That's months after Bud Light faced a boycott over its decision to engage in a promotional campaign with transgender activist Dylan Mulvaney. Following the boycott, Bud Light sales have seen consecutive drops every single week. The beer brand lost its number one spot in the U.S. to Modelo Especial. Anheuser-Busch said that its U.S. revenue fell by 10% in the second quarter due to falling Bud Light sales. The company's U.S. division confirmed several weeks ago that it was laying off about 300 employees. For his part, Gates has not made any public statements about Bud Light, the boycott, or Anheuser-Busch. Neither has the beer giant. Gates also bought shares of other beer brands in recent months. Reuters reported that he purchased about $1 billion worth of shares of Heineken Holding earlier this year. Coming up, glowing blue waves dazzle beachgoers in Southern California. A videographer shares more on this unique natural phenomenon and giraffe napping, a new concept a Tokyo Cafe is trying out. You don't want to miss this. Good to have you back. Is it movie magic or a natural wonder? In an almost special effects-like display, glowing blue waves recently decorated a number of Southern California coastlines, mesmerizing beachgoers for about a week. NTD's Jason Blair spoke with a videographer who was lucky enough to capture the unique phenomenon. Glowing bioluminescent water along the coast of California recently dazzled visitors in a few areas along the Southern coast. We were really fortunate to find this pool of water that was stationary for a while and it had tons of bioluminescence in there. So anytime you touch the water, it just glowed like crazy. Patrick Coyne has been capturing the elusive phenomena for the past few years. It's very random when it does happen and there's really no way to predict it. The only way that we really know that it potentially might happen is if we see a red tide during the day. Bioluminescence is caused by dinoflagellate algae, which during the day turns the ocean red, but at night glows blue when ruffled up. In some areas like Florida, it's more predictable to find, but due to various factors like tides and winds in California, it's a rare treat. 
and nine times out of ten, it leads to nothing. But obviously, it's that one time that makes it count. In 2020, there was a super bloom, and Coin, with some friends, spotted some dolphins swimming with the bioluminescence. And obviously, I'd never seen dolphins swimming in bioluminescence before, which was just one of the craziest, craziest experiences I've ever personally had. Coin says finding and capturing the natural wonder is something he'll never get tired of. He loves the chase, experiencing it, and being able to share his footage. Jason Blair, Entity News, California. Cool story. So Evelyn, before today, had you ever heard about giraffe naps? Nope, no clue. Okay, well, I'll tell you about it. And this is a company in Tokyo, and they're targeting a marketing, testing and marketing a new way for people to grab a nap, and that's while standing up. So let's take a look. Many of us living modern lives are just not getting enough shut-eye. But if you happen upon this cafe in Tokyo, you may just rise to the ranks of the well-rested. Are giraffe naps the answer you've been searching for? Every day, giraffes sleep while standing up for about 20 minutes, just like that. 20 minutes a day is just right for a nap. That's why we call it the giraffe nap, because of the way giraffes rest. The sleeping pod is designed for one person. It has cushions for your knees and behind, and a fold-down headrest. The thing is, if you lie down to rest, you could easily sleep for one or two hours, which would have a negative impact on your sleep during the night. We've promoted the idea of sleeping while sitting, but with this giraffe nap, you can stand and sleep. It's great for a 20-minute nap, so we ordered it. Customers' initial reviews are favorable. It was my first experience of sleeping while standing up. My body weight was more supported than I expected, and I was able to get some rest. The podmaker plans on marketing them to offices and hospitals, and it may just take off. Data from an OECD survey shows out of 33 countries, people in Japan slept least. So when in Tokyo, grab a nap in your knapsack. The trial's on until mid-September. Genius. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, I, I think they make a good point because if I lie down to take a nap, good luck with waking me up after that. So. Yeah, it's easy to just catch a lot of Z's when you go on nap. And I wonder if those pods, which are pretty cool, by the way, are soundproof. Mm, yeah, good question. And that would kind of defeat the point, right? Because then you're not supposed to get too deep yeah, into sleep. Or you wear like little headphones and it looks like there's a little window to look in. Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't ca I didn't see it quite um, clearly, but it looks like there is a window and everything. That's a nice design. Yeah, they probably have thought of it. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So write us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.